Okay, so we're in a series right now called The Coming One, The Coming One, and we are trying to come back to the Lord's word again and again and again to see how he demonstrates the truth about Jesus Christ and how he demonstrates the truth that he is God by being the one who declares it before it comes to be. Remember, we looked at two weeks ago, we've looked at that passage in Isaiah 42 where God is comparing himself with the idols and says, who, who does this? Which among you can do this? I am the Lord. I am the one who declares it before it comes to pass, and then I bring it to pass. I'm the Lord. And we're going to look at a lot of scripture today to continue with that theme of seeing how the Lord declared Jesus before he came. But as a starting platform, I want to use a passage we touched on briefly last week from 2 Peter 1.19. So 2 Peter 1.19 is going to be kind of the, the exhortation, the overall like what we're called to do with all this information kind of thing. And then we'll go through the information, the data points. But 2 Peter tells us what to do with all this data. So here we have this. Let's say this together, okay? If you guys can read this with me, and I'll read it slow enough that we can all read it together. <clears throat> and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through human agency spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, it says prophets though human, but prophets though human. Can we go back to that? Prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, okay? So in this part of Peter's letter, he's explaining to the readers about his own personal experience of the miracle of the transfiguration. Remember the transfiguration. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a hill by themselves, and there on that hill, Jesus does something that no Transformers movie, as I talked about last week, you know, these movies we see which have all this amazing special effects. He moves into that realm of special effects, like really. And Jesus gets up on that mountain, and he basically goes full-on industrial light magic, Lucasfilm Limited. He literally just explodes in blinding light visually before their senses and surrounds himself with a cloud and then comes Elijah and Moses on his left and his right and they just get, Peter, James, and John, they get a vision of what Jesus really looks on, really looks like when he's not hiding in humility, when he's not Sort of, and I use that word hiding, you know, colloquially. But, but, but Jesus normally doesn't just look like you and me. <laughs> for eternity and for eternity to come, the pictures we see in Jesus, whether it's in Isaiah 6 or Revelation, are of his glory blinding us and his eyes like fire and his, his garments whiter than, you know, the sun. It, it, and it's just, it's overwhelming and Jesus shows himself in his glory and basically it is a prediction in in visual illustration of what I believe we're all going to see when he returns and Jesus comes not only to be our lamb 
but he comes to be the Lord of the universe and take his place in the throne <clears throat> on, uh, of God's new, full, fully enacted kingdom on earth, which is coming in his second advent. So Peter's explaining that, look, I saw this with my own eyes. I was there, like, this happened. And he's testifying to this suffering church that's going through persecution, and that's going through persecution from the outside, from the enemies of the gospel, and from the inside, from their own hearts that wanna, that wanna barter and negotiate and, and reject the gospel. He's, he is telling them, hold on. This is true. I saw it. it the, he is coming back, and when he comes back, you are gonna be so glad that you held on. But then he says this thing, we have the prophetic word, like not just my experience, we have it more fully confirmed, he says. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He's saying, listen, recognize that my experience that you, that you didn't see, it simply confirms what the Old Testament prophets have been saying to the world for hundreds and thousands of years. And so he says you should pay very close attention to what they have said too. It will be a lamp. It is a lamp. Their words, the prophetic word is a lamp, he says, shining in a dark world. So he says you do well to pay attention to it, re referring to the prophetic word about Jesus Christ as to a lamp shining in a dark place. <clears throat> and then he says, all this stuff we saw in verse 20. You must understand, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And here Peter is, is placing his impratar, his stamp, as an, as, of, of, of authorities and apostles saying, listen, the Bible is true. The word of God is not a fable. It's not a story, he says, that men made up. It has come from God. I saw it with my eyes that it's true. But it really just confirmed what the prophets said all along. They didn't just write about what would happen during their lives. And it begins to, I think, mingle with what Isaiah says. They wrote about what would happen after their lives. They predicted what would come to pass. And I saw it come to pass. So he says, pay attention to their words as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts which I think the morning star refers to probably his second coming. But I think it also, because he says it shines in your hearts and not simply in the sky, I think it refers to our own battles, possibly. Our own battles with belief and faith. And he's saying, stay on this, stay on this, until the Lord Jesus shines in your heart again through his word. And man, I remember in college, <clears throat> when I was a new Christian, I would have, if, if anybody knows if there's a second thing of water, I would love a second thing of water. Um, oh, wait, 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 wait. There's two waters. Hannah, you drank my water. Um, I'm totally joking, but you probably did, right? Um, thank you. Thank you so much, sister. So, um, <clears throat> so this isn't to shine a spotlight on Hannah. But I just want her to know, we, we talked to her about this this morning, doesn't she have a beautiful voice? You know, when you're getting up here singing, a lot of times it can be hard. I, I'm a, like, whatever, I, I'm a last birth order child, so I always want like 
all the attention. But there are other people who, who really can really struggle with like, ah, blah, blah. and I just want everybody to know, Hannah, you just sounded great. You sounded great this morning. I'm so grateful for your gift to sing with us, and thank you for getting the water after you stole my water. <coughs> okay, so I remember being in college, being a new Christian, and I just remember being so overjoyed that I'd come to know Jesus. And then in a short manner of weeks, being just thrashed by doubts I'd never had before about Jesus. I mean, I grew up a church-going kid as a Catholic. I always thought Jesus was real, but then he became really real to me when I got saved in college. And then over the next few months, I felt like he was being stolen away from me by demons. The thoughts, the fears, the doubts, the questions, the harassment. I could never, like, overcome my own. It, but it drove me to these Old Testament prophecies, which is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about these things. Because over months and months and months and months and months, and I would say years, I'm not boasting myself, I just had to do this. A lot of people have faith so strong they don't have to do this. So I'm not trying to force it necessarily on you. But <laughs> it, it created such stability and growth in me relative to who I was um, that I know this is true. That the Christ, the morning star, he shines in our hearts as we pay attention to the prophetic word. And that's what Peter's asking us to do, is to hold on to these truths so that Christ would shine in our hearts again and again and again as we battle with our own heart when it's racked with doubt, with fears and temptations, to compromise with God, with guilt and trials so bad we want to give up. He's saying, pay attention to these prophets and what they said about Jesus. He will make the morning star, the light of his presence, shine in your heart as you hold on to his word. So what we're going to do today is walk through many of these prophecies as quickly as I can and still be understandable and pray that the Lord would help us to worship him for these things, to have his morning star renew in our hearts today and, and a couple other applications as we go. Have you ever wondered why Jesus so often says things in the scriptures, or, or several times, he says things like this. Oh, foolish men, so slow of heart to believe. And in this passage, he adds this. Oh, foolish men, so slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? He's acting like the people who've been with him for three years should have known all along what he was supposed to do. He doesn't say, man, that was rough three years, wasn't it, boys? And look, now I've come out of the grave, so you can stop fearing and, and unbelieving. And, and, you know, he, he's like, you are fools. <laughs> you are slow of heart to believe. And then he says, in all the things the prophets have spoken, wasn't it necessary? Didn't you know? The Christ had to suffer all these things and then enter his glory. And then it says in verse 27, this is Luke 24, <laughs> then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. And when he says Moses, he means the first five books of the Old Testament because according to their beliefs, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. So essentially he's saying beginning with Genesis and with all the prophets, which takes us through Daniel, Micah, all those guys, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Throughout the New Testament, the writers are saying these things like this, for these things came to pass 
that the scriptures might be fulfilled. They're telling us that the prophetic word has been more fully confirmed. It's been there all along. But they're telling us this so that we might be reminded that there's a lamp to shine in the dark place of this world outside and the world inside. So that in the midst of a lost and sad and unbelieving world, we might believe. We might keep believing. We might hope and keep hoping in Jesus. God told us Jesus was coming. He told us this so that we might put our trust in him. So, here we go. We're going to go through Moses and all the prophets. Not everything, but a lot today. So that we can see all that they told us about what Jesus would have to do. And remember, everything I'm going to read today, to you today is written thousands. Uh, well, it is written at least 1,500 years before Jesus. And it is, it is written no sooner than 500 years before Jesus. And that's verifiable in many ways. You're not going to find even atheistic biblical scholars who will argue with the fact that the Old Testament was written and completed centuries before Jesus Christ. At least, I believe, not credible ones. We talked a little bit about that last week, so I won't belabor that point. Um, so, can't look at everything for the sake of time. We'll look at, we'll look at a few really cornerstone ones. And, and I think, you know, we, I've talked about this before. You know how in Google Zoom Out, you start with the earth, and you click, 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 and you get closer and closer and closer, and things get to be clearer and clearer and clearer and clearer. Like if you put your address in, and you zoom out as far as you can, that's kind of fun, and you see the clouds and the earth, and, or maybe the water, and then you just click, 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 things get clearer and clearer and clearer. I, I think that's a little bit of how the Old Testament works. From Genesis, things are way out there. By the time we get to Daniel, things are super clear. And so see if you can follow that pattern as we go. But let's go all the way back to Genesis. Our first predictive screenshot, if we're Google Zooming, it comes in Genesis 3. After the fall, after Adam and Eve have, have essentially destroyed their relationship with God uh, or, or deeply damaged it and, and called down death upon themselves, at the very dawn of human history, God is, is pronouncing his, uh, his rebukes and in some cases curses. And he says this to the snake who is basically a, a, a figure of the devil. He says, I will put enmity, that means warfare, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that may sound like a general, listen, good and evil are going to do battle for ages and good's going to win. But, but when you really stop to think about what's going on in the Hebrew and what's going on in the way people would normally write, there is a very unusual, important point being made in this verse. Notice that, <laughs> that God does not say, I will put enmity between you and the man and between your offspring and her offspring. No, it is the woman. It is the woman's offspring that is promised to be the source of enmity and conquest. It is a seed from a woman without any reference to the father. And that is not traditional patriarchal writing for biblical authors. And I don't use patriarchal in a pejorative sense. Men led the home, they led the family, and they led the community of God normally. And, and, but note that her seed strikes the serpent's head, which is a mortal blow compared to the serpent's comparatively weak ability. So we have here, in a hazy way, we have these intimations of a seed from a woman. 
and not from a man. Seeds come from men in the Bible, but not here. Here the seed comes from a woman, and so we're intimating towards the virgin birth. Next, nearly, nearly 2,000 years before Christ, we have this promise that's made to Abraham. This happens in about 1850 B.C., where Abraham is about to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, for the Lord. And you remember that the Lord stops his hand and says, don't do that. This was simply a test. I don't want a child sacrifice from you. And then God says to him, because you have done this thing, you have not withheld your son, your only son. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Very similar to Genesis 3. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So we see this offspring to come will overthrow his enemies and bless the entire world. And he is now not a descendant of Eve only, but he is, we're, 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 we're siphoning down. He is now a descendant of a specific man named Abraham in the year about 1850 B.C. Now Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But in Genesis 21:12, God says to Abraham, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. Through Isaac, your offspring shall come. So now God separated Isaac's descendants off of Isaac, and he's focusing on Isaac and not Ishmael. And then decades later, apparently on his deathbed, Isaac's son Jacob gives this prophecy concerning one of his 12 sons. The 12 sons of Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. All your brothers are going to bow down to you. The scepter, the ruling staff, the kingly instrument shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until the one to whom it belongs comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the nations. Not just Israel, but the whole world. Genesis 49.10. So now we have a clearer picture of the Messiah, born from the seed of a woman, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Isaac, a descendant of Jacob. And of Jacob's 12 boys, only Judah's descendants hold the scepter, hold the kingship, until the one comes who rules all the nations, and not just Israel. Now let's zoom forward after uh, after this prophecy of Judah, so now we're going to move some 700 years forward to King David. And King David writes of one in Psalm 110 who is the Lord. So King David is writing about the Lord, Yahweh. But this Lord, Yahweh, is addressing somebody who is David's Lord. David writes, the Lord, that's Yahweh, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You are a priest forever. Now, if you're a Jewish person steeped in, in understanding the theocratic and priestly offices of Israel and understanding how things are supposed to work in God's law, you're freaking out because what in the world is going on here? Is he a priest? Is he a king? First of all, priests and kings do not do the same thing. They have to do different things. Secondly, what in the world is David doing talking to Yahweh about his Lord? Yahweh is his Lord. The king is the king of Israel. There's nobody between Israel and God except for David. He's the king. But now David is saying, 
God, it was really, I mean, this is not doing it justice, but God, you are saying to my Lord these things. So it's a very confusing thing unless you have what? A Trinitarian God. And within that Trinitarian God, you have roles of subordination and headship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I do all that my Father commands me, Jesus said. Jesus said to the Pharisees, who is the Messiah? They said, he's David's son. And Jesus said, if he's David's son, then why does David call him his Lord? They had no answer, it says. So we move into this picture that's becoming more complicated. We see a king over David, who is also commissioned as an eternal priest by God, which is not right, (laughs) according to the theocracy of, of Israel. And in another psalm, King David then writes mysteriously of an experience that he never had, but which might sound very familiar to you. And here's what David writes in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this is about 1000 BC. Okay, keep that in mind. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. But I am a worm and not a man a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts, upon you I was cast from my birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This man cries out with Jesus' words, which the Lord references on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This man's bones are out of joint, as if his body is being stretched to the ripping point. Do you know what can happen in a crucifixion? Your bones aren't broken unless they do it on purpose. But your bones are pulled so far out of your body's alignment that they fall out of joint in some cases. This man's hands and feet, his hands and his feet are pierced through. There was no crucifixion in David's time that David knew of. This man is mocked and scoffed at as he's surrounded by his enemies all alone. 
David might have felt all alone at times. I don't remember in David's battles with Saul or his enemies when he was ever left completely alone. This man is completely alone. All his friends have deserted him. They have even taken his clothes from him. I don't remember a scene where David was left naked. I mean, not dancing in front of the ark, but in, in a torturous ordeal, left naked, while those who hated him divided his lots, divided his clothing with lots. In, in all the scriptures, in all of human history, you will find all these things coming together in one man, and one man only that I know of, and that's Jesus Christ. This is a thousand years or so before Jesus ever took a breath on earth. We do well to pay attention to the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Did we not understand that the Christ had to suffer all these things before he was exalted into glory? Moving along hundreds of years through the prophetic clock to about 700 years or so before Christ, we read one of the most famous messianic prophecies concerning one of Judah's descendants. One of Judah's descendants named Jesse. Jesse is the father of who? David. This is about Jesse's dad. Here's what the prophet says in Isaiah. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots. Jesse's roots will bear fruit. Think about Jesse being the root, right? And then you see a stem coming out of it. Oh, that's what we're talking about. This little shoot that's coming up. And here's what he's going to do. With righteousness, he'll judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Like God, he does things just with his words. And nature and life and death obey. And verse 10, then in that day, the nations, everyone, the whole world will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Here's this person who brings global peace and nations come to him for rest. But do you notice something astonishing we just read? This man at the beginning in the first verse is called the shoot of Jesse. He comes out of Jesse as if a descendant of, actually, there's no question about it, the poetic languages, he's a descendant of Jesse. But what is going on in, in verse eleven ten? He is the root of Jesse. He is before Jesse. Jesse comes from him. He is a descendant of Jesse in verse 1, but he's the source of Jesse in verse 11. Who could that be? <laughs> Isaiah also tells us in chapter 9, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Everyone is probably very familiar with this passage. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Maybe this inspired Peter. <laughs> the dark world is being filled with a bright light. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. 
here's this child, a descendant of David, which means he's a descendant of Jesse, which means he's a descendant of Judah, a descendant of Jacob, which means he must be a descendant of Isaac and Abraham. But he's also mighty God. He's also eternal father. He also has a rule that goes everywhere and that never ends. But around the very same time, Isaiah was writing these words, at least with the same, within the same lifetime. They might have been years apart. The prophet Micah writes this famous prophecy. As for you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. You're just a little city like Cleveland or Buffalo compared to New York or L.A. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This one will be our peace. Micah 5, 2. This one will be our peace. Here's a ruler who comes from this obscure little city, but whose origins are eternal, who becomes the very peace of his people. Zechariah, writing in the early 500s, announces a similar picture of a peace-bringing king over all the world. And he writes in chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, look, pay attention, listen up. Here's how your king is going to come to you. Your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, but he comes to you humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Do you remember on Palm Sunday, we talked about this a few weeks ago. What did Israel want? They wanted a conquering king. They wanted a king to ride in on a stallion, a horse of warfare, a horse of dominance. What did Jesus do? He made them get him a donkey. He knew what he was doing. He was fulfilling scripture. Isaiah 42, we, we read this two weeks ago. I don't want to spend too much time in Isaiah 42, but just a couple of notices. He's a covenant for the people. He's a light for the nations. More and more and more we're seeing that this Messiah isn't simply a Messiah for the Jewish people. He isn't simply a son of Abraham meant to serve Abraham's seed by the flesh. He's meant to serve the entire world. He's a covenant for the people and a light for the nations. And the theme of saving servant repeats, of humble saving servant repeats again and again. And it starts to crescendo in Isaiah around chapter 52. And here's what, here's what he says. This is, this is the ground zero for me. And I know you've heard this a lot in your life probably, certainly if you've been in church with me, but, but please, Lord, I pray that these words would not be wrote to us now, that they would be miraculous to our hearts. Seven centuries 
before Jesus walks on the earth. That's like me writing about John Coleman's life in 1380, right? I mean, I'll give you that. 1380, me writing <laughs> something about his life, his mission, who he is, why he's here in 1380. Just like, think about that. Like, there's, no, there's no England that's really organized really well at that point. There's like a lot of people in Ireland with tons of tattoos. Nobody knows. <laughs> it's just the world is just a, a complete, you know, wilderness in so many respects, the world that we're used to in the West. And yet this prophet sees something so precise and specific and incredible in 1380 about your life today. The Lord has comforted his people. Can we go back one slide? Okay. Hold on one sec, Brando. The Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. And, and how has he done that? The Lord has bared. The Lord has laid bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. The, the arm of the Lord is his strength. It, it is, it's his instrument of power in these later chapters of Isaiah. The arm of the Lord is the, the power of God that defeated Egypt at the Exodus and made the waters divided for God. So it's this instrument and symbol of God's mighty power, his arm. And in Isaiah 52, God says, he lays bare his holy arm. He lays it bare. He, he strips it. <laughs> he reveals it to everyone. The whole world, he says. And there's joy in that passage. People are going to rejoice at this, and they're going to proclaim the good news of it. But then Isaiah brings everything tight in a few verses. And, and he says this. After sending out the message about the arm, Isaiah says almost in melancholy form, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Like, who, we, we've proclaimed the good news, there is rejoicing, but who has really believed this? To whom has it really been revealed? Because it wasn't what we thought. No, it, was, it wasn't like we thought it would be. It was like this. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty. He didn't come on a warrior's horse. There was no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Brothers and sisters, before we go any further, I just got to tell you, I am just being convicted right now of the incredible privilege and honor that we have in this room to hear these words. There are billions of people in this world who don't know these words, whom the arm of the Lord has not been revealed to. 
But my brothers and sisters, you are favored people that God would speak these words to you, that he would reveal these words to you. May our hearts be open and our eyes not blind and our ears not dull. For God has not been hiding this from us. He has made it very clear. Listen to the word of God. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord Yahweh will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see light and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Could God make it any clearer to us that our faith is not an invention? That Jesus Christ is not a lie? What could he do? Could he write it in the sky for us? Brothers and sisters, in our, in our sin we'd find a way to pass it off. I know it. I've seen enough miracles in my life to know that I can become dull after them easily. No, he's given us something a lot more objective. His word over thousands of years has stood the test of time. Brothers and sisters, there is no God like our God. There is no testimony like this testimony. I don't mean to be arrogant. The world has nothing like this. Islam has nothing like this. Higher critics who in liberal theology deny the veracity of the scripture, they have nothing like this. They can't, they can't deny this. This is the word that the Jews call precious, who reject Jesus. And they won't, as far as I understand, they won't read Isaiah 53 in their services. They have a calendar that calls for liturgical readings in the Hebrew tradition in the, in the synagogues. And they go from Isaiah 52 to Isaiah 54. They won't touch this passage. I'll 
all my shouting isn't going to make this happen, right? The Holy Spirit just has to work. He has to work in our hearts. He has to work in my hearts to re-soften us, right? So I'm sorry if my shouting turns you off. I, I just, I feel the presence of the Lord here right now in this. And he loves you. And he's not like, I don't sense that Lord is simply, believe me, you knuckleheads. I, I just think you are precious to him. He's chosen you. And he wants to wash you with his word again this morning and make it a miracle to you again. At this point, it's difficult for me to imagine the picture getting any clearer. Can it become any clearer? Well, if you were here last week, I hope you think that it can get clearer. Because last week we read Daniel 9, 24 through 27. I, won't, I just want to go quickly through that because some of you weren't here and because it's just such a miraculous passage, we could read it every week and honor the Lord. <laughs> some 536 years B.C., before Jesus takes a breath, 536 years before Jesus takes a breath, he gives Daniel, through the angel Gabriel, this very detailed and enigmatic passage. We read through this last week. So you are to know, Gabriel says to Daniel, and discern, like get this, this isn't supposed to be hidden from you, the issuing of decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will, referring to Jerusalem, be built again with a plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 sevens, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. As we talked about last week, in the context of Daniel and Revelation and other prophetic places in the scripture, it seems very likely that the sevens refer to seven years. So you've got seven sets of years and, and, and 62 sets of years. And if you put those years together, it's a time period of 483 years, which Gabriel says will begin the countdown to Messiah from a certain decree. That decree came in the mid-400s BC, whether it was in 445 or 457, that decree, decree came in the mid-400s BC. And what is fairly clear from several approaches is that Daniel here predicts with miraculous accuracy the appearance of Jesus Christ as Israel Messiah and his crucifixion around 32 AD. And what is further compelling is that this appearance and the killing of the Messiah, it must occur before Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed, which happened in 70 AD. Meaning, there's no more waiting for anyone for the Messiah. If you're Jewish and you believe that Daniel wrote for God, then AD 70 was, time's up. So, now we have not only the, the place of the birth of Christ, but we have the time when the Christ must come and reveal himself as Christ. We have the nature of his um, his coming, we have his purpose for coming, we have the promise of his death, and we have the promise of the destruction of the city he came to save after he comes. Folks, there's much more we could look at in the Bible, but I hope you've seen enough to be refreshed in your conviction today that God told us Jesus was coming, that he told us from the time in the garden to the day that Gabriel spoke to Mary. Let's just go through what we've learned today, what we've seen again today. Here's what God has told us through the word. Here's what Jesus was referring to when he said, why are you so slow to believe? When Jesus, with his own words, said, why are you so slow and hard of heart to believe? All the prophets have said about the Christ. It's not my words. Jesus' words. Foolish. <laughs> Foolish. 
come on. All they've written about me. He said that to his disciples. Here's what he has told us. We're foolish to not believe. Born of the seed of the woman. Destroys Satan and his work. We a descendant from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Jesse, and David. He would be the savior of Israel and the peace of the whole world. He would bring, and uh, he would be a king and an eternal priest. He would be a king and a priest. He would be a child given to us and a mighty God over us. His birthplace would be Bethlehem. He would appear as Messiah just when Gabriel said, over 400 years before Jesus took his first breath, just when Gabriel said he would come. He would come to his people as their king, riding on a donkey, a symbol of gentleness and humility. But he would be rejected by his own and unjustly condemned to death. He would be scourged. His hands and feet would be pierced. His limbs would be stretched to the breaking point. As he is tortured and he he is mocked, his clothes are divided by lot. He would be assigned a criminal's grave, but buried in a rich man's tomb. That's what Jesus happened to him. He was crucified to be buried with criminals. But uh, his disciples, or I can't remember exactly who it was, but, but Joseph of Arimathea offered his tomb for Jesus. And either Joseph or one of Joseph's servants came and said, can we please take his body? I know you want to throw it into a pit with criminals or something like that, but we'd like to take his body and put it into a tomb with a very rich, a rich man's tomb. And that was Joseph. That was predicted 700 years before Jesus ever took a breath. But it would be God causing Jesus to suffer. Behind all this suffering, or, or this Messiah, whoever he is, he would die in our place for our sins, Isaiah tells us. He would justify us from all our sins as our atoning sacrifice. After his death, he would see the light of life. How do you do that? Well, you have to not be dead anymore. So here's the resurrection. He would thus be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentile nations. After his death, the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed by AD 70. So we can agree with Peter when Peter says, hey, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. (laughs) Don't we? A few applications to close. This isn't math. This isn't math. This is a call to worship. I mean, we can all walk out of here and say, I know messing out of prophecy. I can beat the, you know, I have, I have more ammo for my argument with the atheist or for the, the Jewish person who doesn't respond to Jesus or for the higher critic. I have an abundance of evidence. But it's not math. This is about seeing with the heart and worshiping with our lives. This is a call to say, Jesus, you are the king. You are the king. You deserve my life. You deserve my trust. You deserve my obedience. Jesus came to be the king of your heart. He really did. He came to be your king. He came to be my king. King of my money. I don't want to give him all that money. I don't want to give him all that time. I don't want to give him but he came to be the king. And so this can't be about Bible knowledge simply. It can't be what James calls this dead faith. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? I mean if you know all the prophecies you probably can have a better chance to call me Lord, Lord. But he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I say? Don't don't bother. Don't call me Lord if you're not going to do what I say. You're just adding insult to injury. I'd rather you be cold than lukewarm like that. So he says, this isn't math. This is a call to worship.
But the great news is, <laughs> is that he's not just a king. He's a rescuer. He's a rescuer. He can't be the king unless he rescues us from our own kingly rule over ourselves. And so the Christ had to suffer. There's a Joan Osborne song from the 80s. It was actually written by, um, nobody cares. It was actually written by somebody else. But anyway, um, I like this because it has to do with this old band, the Hooters, that did these songs when I was a kid. I listened to the Hooters, and they were like singing about Moses and Abraham. I'm like, are the Hooters a Christian band? Well, I don't know. But, but they wrote this song later for this other lady named John, Joan Osborne, and she made it really famous. That's all for free. But the song was called, What If God Was One Of Us? Does anybody remember that song? I mean, other people have done it because it's a beautiful song. What if God was one of us? I mean, I listen to that song. I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know? I mean, I, the sentiment is beautiful, but it's beautiful because we were made for that. <laughs> like, and also Joan, he, 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 actually, he actually was. <laughs> You know, like he was one of us. God was one of us. He was one of us so that he could understand the difficulty you have making him king, letting him be king. He became one of us to suffer as one of us for our rebellion against him so that we would not have to suffer for our rebellion. He became one of us so that he could understand how hard it is to follow him. And he understands that you are tempted every day to not want him. And so he is a rescuer for you. And if, if, if these messianic prophecies do nothing else for you today, then, then cause you to say, Lord, rescue me from myself again today. I will be so glad. If that sincerely happens in your heart today, if you sincerely have a moment of worship where you say, okay, I see you are the king. I see it again. And then your heart moves to say, God, I need rescuing again today. Why do you think that the king who came to rescue you, why do I think so often that the king who came so obviously, not as a king this first time, but as a servant to rescue and suffer for me, he, and intercede for me, and, and, and his big job was taking all of my sin upon him, why do I think so easily that, that now I should just be cool with him being king all the time? Like, as if I don't constantly need him to be my rescuer. Because we do need him to be our rescuer again and again and again. I told you this week we got super sick. We got super sick. It was crazy. Craziest thing I've ever seen in my house. But I had made a promise weeks ago to my kid that I would take her to see the rise of Star Wars. And so I got sick. I finished being like, like, the grossest sick on Wednesday. I was very weary on Thursday. I was feeling a lot better on thir Friday. And so I, 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 I just was really struggling, you know, because I, I, I thought I probably shouldn't come to the singles thing. I, I did a lot of read-ups on the norovirus and contagions and 48 hours and all this stuff. It, it looked like I, I could have gone back to, uh, to school on Saturday, you know. But on, on Friday, it was really iffy. And... Um, and I, I just, but I felt so bad because I really wanted to keep my commitment to my daughter. She had been healthy days before I got sick, so I knew she wasn't sick. Uh, but it meant getting a babysitter. And as I read up through Kim's texts on what the norovirus does to a house, we had a babysitter. And uh, I decided that 
in a movie theater, I could keep myself washed and clean and away from people enough to, to take Marie to go to this thing. And okay, full disclosure, I also wanted to see this movie. Um, but but I, I'm driving there, and I'm starting to think about, and, and we wipe down everything with bleach, and everybody's been uh, free of actual um, things emanating from their bodies <laughs> since Wednesday, and I'm thinking it's been several days, and um, I think I can do this. I can sit down. I'm, I'm, I'm strong enough to sit, you know, in a theater. And, and I started realizing that I've asked a young lady to come and sit in my house, you know, and I just, I, I just wasn't sure that this was a good idea. And so, uh, so I, so Jen checked with her and told her, and she said, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. But it just kept, like, hammering on my heart, you know, and I thought, what would I do if I were her? Because I thought about, I was praying about this and praying about this. And at times I felt like God was like, okay, go, 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 go. It's okay. You've taken normal precautions. Don't be OCD Albert. Like, this is, uh, you've done enough. And then other times it just felt like my conscience was very vulnerable. And I felt like, no, this, this, this just doesn't seem right. And I kept going back and forth. And, um, and I just got to the point where I was like, I just don't feel right about this. Lord, please help, please help, please help help. And I remembered, do unto others as they would do unto you. And I thought, what would I want if I was, and listen guys, I just felt like in such an impossible place with my flesh. And, and I know this is just like, I'm not talking about pornography or something like this, but the principles apply. I just wanted something. And I didn't care. There's a part of me that just wanted it so bad that I didn't care what might happen to somebody else. And I'm sorry, like, that's in my heart. And, and I, I just knew that was wrong. But I did not know how to get out of that place. But I remember this promise that no temptation has overcome you, but that's not common to man. And he will provide a way out so that you can endure the temptation and stand. He is faithful. He is faithful to rescue you from the temptation, to provide a way out. And I just did not want to wreck my relationship with God, which already felt like I hadn't talked, you know, with, with being sick. And I just felt so out of my, his presence and out of fellowship and out of sorts. And I just felt like I don't want to keep going down this road away from him. I don't want to hurt. It, it was just, but I want to see this movie. I want to take my kids. I don't want to have to explain to her that we can't. I want to deal with the disapproval of my kids. I don't want to have to deal with all that stuff. So I just want to just take this chance and roll the dice. And I thought to myself, there is no way I'm going to get out of this. How do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? And I just kept praying. That's all I could do was say to God, I stink. Will you please help me? And I just heard it. Okay. You can't give up the movie yet. But you can call her dad. And it was like a life raft. It was like... God, I can call her dad. There was, as Augustine says, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. <laughs> when I heard you can call her dad, I had power to call her dad. And I just called her dad, and I just explained it to him. You know, here's what's going on. Here's what I'm worried about. What do you think? What should we do? I'm so happy to come back home. And what do you want for your family? And he was like, he was super gracious. And maybe it was crazy, but he was like, we are fine. 
you guys have cleaned the surfaces with bleach. That's what you had to do. You've all been healthy for many days now, you know, at least free from this stuff. We're fine. Don't even bother, blah, blah, blah. I cried <laughs> because he rescued me. And I know, you know, maybe some of you guys are like, that wasn't the right thing to do. But at that point, I knew, <laughs> like, God had rescued me. Like, I was trying to decide due diligence or presumption. Wh which is it, Lord? And I, between me and the Lord, God gave me a way to meet with him that I didn't have, that I didn't think I could have. And I think the problem for us guys so often is we, we run to other escapes because we don't believe that God can rescue us. And of all the things I want you to walk out from this today is to remember that this really is the rescuer. This really is the savior from your sins. And you've got to keep coming to him because he needs to not just be your rescuer. He needs to be your king. So that on the second advent, because there's two advents, right? There's this advent, right? We call it advent week and all that stuff. But there's another advent. There's another coming. When he comes the second time, he doesn't look at you and say, why do you call me Lord? I never knew you. You prophesied, you did miracles, but you, you were a person of lawlessness. You ruled yourself. I didn't know you. And so what do we do, right? Do we, oh, okay, God, I'm gonna pull myself by my roots. I'll earn it by my works. Oh, told me that's impossible and so he's got to be our rescuer if he's going to be our king because he is serious about being our king he is not kidding and all these verses we've seen today are telling us that he is coming back to judge the whole world but he's come first to rescue you and to be your rescuer every day then last thing is this in light of that second advent that's coming who around you can you just think of one person that you can begin to pray for regularly if you're not right now that, that might have a place for you in their heart? A person in your, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in your familyhood that you might be able to this year start walking towards with a little bit more deliberation because they're, they're, they're not ready for that second advent. They're not ready for his coming kingdom and they need to know would you ask God to tell you who one person is that you, begin, you can begin to walk toward who doesn't have him and is heading toward that second advent without him? Would you do that? That's it. Okay, guys. We're going to close with communion, and we're going to do that right now. Would you guys bow your heads with me? And has the communion team handed out the juice and the bread? Okay. All right, well, I'm going to give them a second to do that. And I'm going to read back over Isaiah 53 as we prepare for communion. Hear the Lord Jesus saying these words over you, brothers and sisters, today. He was despised. And forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. 
but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. But because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see the light and be satisfied. My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord took the bread and giving it to his disciples, he said to them, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body given for you. Let's eat the body of our Lord in this bread. And just as he did with the bread, he took the cup. And giving it to his disciples, he said to them, This is the cup of my blood, the new covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of many. Do this in memory of me. Let's drink the cup. Brothers and sisters, we know who Jesus is. He is our salvation. He's our righteousness. Please enjoy the salvation of the Lord today. You do not save yourselves. He has justified you. He has interceded for you. You are his beloved. May you know the joy of his salvation today and throughout the whole Christmas season. And may you come on Tuesday night <laughs> to love on one another and those who he'll bring. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I just threw that Tuesday night thing in there, but <laughs> love you guys.